The embalmer followed his regular ritual with the corpse of the frail, elderly woman. He washed and shaved her face. He sprayed her nose and mouth with disinfectant. He placed plastic covers over her eyes. He was about to wire her mouth shut when her tongue moved. The woman was alive. Welcome to Tales from the Rep Morgue, the podcast that explores the Canton Repository's 200-year-old archive. I'm your host, Shane Hoover. The story you're about to hear sounds like an urban legend, but for Belle Cordray, it was a terrifying brush with death. In the fall of 1971, the Canton woman was mistakenly declared dead by a doctor, sent to a funeral home, and almost embalmed before anyone noticed she was alive. It's a story that taps into one of the oldest and deepest fears. What if everyone thinks you're dead when you're really alive? Part 1. Not Dead Yet. To be buried while alive is, beyond question, the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. That it has frequently, very frequently, so fallen will scarcely be denied by those who think. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? The Premature Burial, Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe, the American Gothic author, wrote several stories about being buried alive, among them The Premature Burial. His Murders in the Rue Morgue, considered the first American detective story, also inspired the title of this podcast. Poe wrote his dark tales in the 1830s and 40s, but stories about being buried alive have been told since antiquity. Even the Romans had tales of esteemed politicians waking up on funeral pyres. The fear of being buried alive is called taphophobia, and strictly speaking, it's the irrational fear of being buried alive. But in the days before modern medicine, such a fear wasn't necessarily irrational, says Dr. John Bondison, author of the 2001 book, Buried Alive, and a recently retired senior lecturer at Cardiff University. I caught up with Dr. Bondison at his home in Dunbar, Scotland, where he was getting ready for the cider season. The phone connection was a bit scratchy. Bondison said there's no way of knowing how many people were buried alive in centuries past, but he sifted the legends and verified two cases from the 1800s. The two verified cases, and one wonders how many others woke up in the narrow house underground without any means of communicating with the outside world, to chew their fingers, scratch their unyielding coffin lid in the agony. There were several factors that could lead to premature burial before modern medicine. Doctors didn't agree on what constituted death, and diagnostic tools, if they existed, were crude. During epidemics of plague or cholera, 
victims were quickly buried, often in mass graves. And when gravediggers exhumed corpses with contorted bodies, grimaced faces, chewed fingers, or women who appeared to have given birth in a coffin, the discoveries fueled stories of premature burial, even though natural decomposition was most likely to blame. Bondison said the fear of premature burial really took off in the 1700s. Well, it actually started in the 1740s when a French doctor named Jean-Jacques Bruyer wrote a best-selling book um, about uh, premature burials and apparent death. And his opinion was that the only certain sign of death was putrefaction. So you, you were not really dead until you were both dead and putrid. A German doctor, Christian Hufeland, took Bruyer's idea a step further with the Lyschen House, a waiting mortuary where corpses were kept until they started to rot. So a house full of uh, putrefying corpses that kind of smelled very nice. Uh, and some of these Lyschen houses were very big establishments. They were, had uh, hundreds of corpse beds with uh, floral decorations in a vain attempt to uh, combat the a terrible smell and the strings, a signaling system with strings tied to the fingers and the toes of the corpses so that even the slightest movement would make a bell ring and then the watchman would come running to try to save the apparently dead person. Leichenhauser were built all over Germany and in a few neighboring countries, but the idea didn't catch on in France, Britain, or the United States. Doctors also devised horrific tests to check for life. Pouring hot wax on the forehead, applying red-hot irons to sensitive areas, cutting the soles of a patient's feet with razors, even enemas of tobacco smoke. Some people left instructions in their wills for a doctor to cut their throat or stab their heart with a long pin to make sure they were dead. To them, it was better to be killed by the test than to be buried alive. Meanwhile, inventors in Europe and America designed so-called security coffins equipped with air vents, breathing tubes, alarm bells, escape ladders, and one even had a telegraph. All were intended to give the not-so-deceased a plan B in case of a hasty burial. Now today, a lack of heartbeat and respiration are recognized signs of death, and doctors have advanced technology. We have absolutely certain uh, signs of death if you want to use them. We have electrocardiography and electroencephalography. But mistakes still happen. Part 2, when we come back. Part 2, Dead on Arrival. No one suspected, indeed, or had reason to suspect that she was not actually dead. She presented all the ordinary appearances of death. The face assumed the usual pinched and sunken outline. The lips were of the usual marble pallor. The eyes were lusterless. There was not warmth. Pulsation had ceased. On November 20th, 1971, an ambulance rolled up to the emergency room at Timken Mercy Hospital. 
In the back was a chronically ill 64-year-old woman. The ambulance driver had felt a pulse, and he watched Belle Cordray take at least one breath before he left her in the ER. But the nurses didn't find any vital signs. No blood pressure, no breathing. The woman's eyes didn't respond to light. A doctor pronounced Cordray dead after a 10-minute exam, and the hospital sent her body to Rossi Funeral Home. It was seemingly the end of Cordray's hard, but accomplished life. Cordray had been born in New York City to Orthodox Jewish parents who emigrated from Poland. After her mother, who had schizophrenia, died in an asylum, Cordray landed in an orphanage. When her father moved to Ohio and remarried, he brought Cordray to Canton to help care for his new family. She later married a Canton police officer, and they had a son. She was widowed in 1950 when her husband died suddenly. But hard times were only part of Belle Cordray's story. Her granddaughter, Lisa Foster, remembered Cordray as, quote, a typical Jewish grandmother. She took me to temple on high holidays. Um, um, really, really sweet lady. Um, very into her religion. Um, you know, very, very nice, lovely lady. Cordray had a sharp, inventive mind. And in 1953, she became the first Hoover Company employee ever to get a patent for an idea submitted through the company's suggestion program. It was for a simple but important improvement of the cloth bags on one of Hoover's sweepers. Uh, she loved to dance. She loved to travel. She used to go back to New York City a lot. Um, she did, what else, she loved to read. But in her later years, Cordray struggled with chronic illness and anxiety, which helps explain why the nurses and a doctor mistook her for dead. Grandma was always nervous, constant. Back in the 70s, they gave Valium to old ladies that were nervous. Um, she had this big bottle of Valium, and every time she was nervous, she'd take a pill. And um, Dad had always told her, Mom, don't take so many pills. Well, she doesn't listen. Cordray had passed out from taking too much Valium a couple of times before she was mistaken for dead. Usually, she would just sleep in her chair. But in November 1971, she passed out in bed. What's more, the heat went off in her apartment. It was late fall, and the temperature dropped into the 30s. When her sister found her, the apartment was frigid. The hospital and doctor later argued that Cordray's overdose had slowed her breathing and that she had spent 12 hours in a 30-degree room, causing her veins and arteries to contract and making it hard for the doctor and nurses to find any vital signs. It's a common scenario for cold temperatures and a drug overdose to make a patient appear dead, said Dr. Bondison. Well, there have been many cases through the years of uh, people taking drugs, particularly barbiturates, in an attempt to commit suicide. 
uh, in freezing cold weather and then being declared dead uh, by mistake. Even in the 1970s, there was a French drug addict in Surrey, England, who uh, took an overdose in cold weather, and he was taken to the hospital, declared dead, and then she, he woke up while his coffin lid was screwed down at the funeral parlor, and he made his resurrection known by knocking at the coffin lid. So that was a very near miss indeed, even worse than your, yours. So one wonders how many have actually woken up in a coffin um, below ground under those circumstances. Part 3, when we come back. Part 3, Cordray's Second Act. For I shuddered to reflect that, upon waking, I might find myself the tenant of a grave. And when finally I sank into slumber, it was only to rush at once into a world of phantasms, above which, with vast, sable, overshadowing wings, hovered, predominant, the one sepulchral idea. After Cordray's close call, the Cuyahoga County coroner told the repository that the chances of being pronounced dead while still alive were 100,000 to 1. It was an interesting statistic, but the article gave no basis for it. Cordray recovered enough to leave Timken Mercy, but she was never able to live on her own. She spent her final years at Molly Stark Hospital. My dad went out every Sunday. We would go out, we'd pick up her sister, and out we'd go. Um, and then sometimes we'd go during the week. So once or at least once a week, used sometimes twice. When a repository reporter visited the hospital a year later to do a story on how the patients were making ceramic ashtrays and other crafts, Cordray brought up her near-death experience. You've read about me haven't you? Cordray asked the reporter. You've read about how they thought I was dead, haven't you? Wasn't that awful? Lisa Foster said her father waited a couple of months to tell his mother what had happened to her. When they did tell her, it was, it was, oh my God. Um, she, she was very scared. She was scared at night. I remember they medicated her heavily at night. Um, she would fixate on this. Um, Adam Rossi uh, from Rossi Funeral Home was a personal friend of the family's, and um, he would come see her, and uh, she she would talk to him a lot. Um, she was afraid of doctors. Back then, the doctors would make rounds at the nursing homes, and um, she would think that the doctor that made the rounds at the nursing home was the doctor that said she was dead. Um, she was always afraid the doctor would say she's dead when she wasn't. In 1974, Cordray's $150,000 lawsuit against the hospital and the ER doctor went to trial. After a day of testimony, the doctor settled and the case was dismissed. The terms weren't disclosed.
Bell died on October 26, 1975, almost four years after her apparent death. She was 68. Her son Charles struggled with guilt for the rest of his life. He felt, he just felt horrible. He felt that he failed her. He spent the rest of his life trying to make it up to her. Um, that's just the kind of relationship they had. Foster is a registered nurse and for 35 years has worked with patients needing long-term care. She can see how the doctor and nurses mistook her grandmother for dead. You know, old lady, frail, looks dead, doesn't respond, no pulse, I get it. Um, but maybe you just, you know, take a second look. It's why her grandmother is never far from her mind when she examines a patient. I always um, have second, third, fourth, fifth thoughts before I pronounce somebody, you know, and it's, and it's because of that. Um, I just, I don't take it lightly. Medicine has advanced a lot in the nearly 50 years since Cordray's case, but mistakes still happen. In 2014, national media reported the case of Walter Williams, a 78-year-old Mississippi man who started kicking in a body bag after he had been declared dead. When Williams, who was in hospice care, actually died two weeks later, his nephew remarked, I think he's gone this time. And inventors are still designing security coffins. Five years ago, the United States awarded a patent for a portable alarm system that transmits a wireless signal when a person is alive inside a coffin or tomb. Thanks for listening to the Rep Morgue Podcast. And special thanks to our voice talent for this episode, Mr. James Baller. Songs heard in this episode included Blind by Maidon and The Paladin's Underworld, Depth of Focus, and Unfolding Mirrors, all by Shane Ivers. You can check out the show notes, including some safety coffin designs, and listen to other podcasts at cantonrep.com.